Last week we were describing uh, from a poem that Nahum uh, opens up his prophecy with about what God says about himself. And so the question was, do we know God as he wants to be known? Do we know him as he reveals himself? And thinking about Yahweh, as we learned his name, uh, can be stretching to us that Yahweh is an angry God, a God with flaring nostrils, an avenging God, a wrathful God, a jealous God. Even understanding those, that terminology in its proper context, that can still stretch us. But anger is not the full defining of who Yahweh is, of course. Now, all the prophets seem to have their own little um, thing that they major on. They're impacted. They're impressed with certain aspects of Yahweh. When you think of uh, Isaiah, he sees Yahweh and he says, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. He's impressed with the holiness of God. Uh, Jeremiah with the, the judgment that Yahweh brings. Uh, Ezekiel, he, had, he saw visions of God and the glory of God to Ezekiel. Uh, Jonah, of course, most of us are most familiar with Jonah, who emphasizes the, the love of Yahweh. And Jonah, in fact says this in the end of his prophecy, Jonah 4.2, And he prayed to Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is what Jonah was saying about Yahweh in the way he was merciful and kind to Nineveh when they repented. And Nahum, of course, we saw that he really is impressed with the, the anger, the wrath of God. And so he emphasizes it, but it's not everything. They each have their own emphasis. He himself says in verse 7 that God is good, Right? God is good, but he will dominate his enemies in his time. And so we have to sort of embrace this tension. Knowing God well is so important. We don't want to tell fairy tales here, uh, and it's not all doom and gloom. There's a combination, there's, there's a complexity I'd like to read a brief testimony of Asaph. Asaph wrote Psalm 50. And in Psalm 50, verse 21, uh, I'll read verse 20 also. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And so there's misbehavior going on. And then Asaph says, These things... He writes this about Yahweh. These things you have done and have been silent. I have been silent. 
you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. And so Asaph, I'm going to read verses 2 and 3 as well in Psalm 50. He says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. And in between those two, he has the rest of his psalm. The, the point is, Asaph is this, he's a singer, he's a spiritual guy, and he's able to embrace this tension. He sees Yahweh as one who's, nobody's going to get away with anything. You misbehave, he sees it. But he's patient and slow to anger. But he's also a devouring fire, fire. around him a mighty tempest. And so we have to do this also. We have to embrace a bit of a tension between the God who's wrathful and the God who is good and kind and loving. Yahweh is all this and more. His way to us, as we read last week in the psalm, is, is like in the whirlwind and the storm. He, he can use chaos we think of a story, we just want to run in the basement and hide. But he's able to even use the storms and the whirlwind. His being slow to anger and great in power is the very characteristics that allow him to say that no one will get off guilty. The guilty will be brought to justice. Nehemiah also says this. Nehemiah 9.17, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful. Here it is, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he mentions, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. I'll put a chart up soon about a timeline to show the distance and what people are talking about. There's many hundreds of years going on. Nehemiah speaks very late in time, and he's referring to the time of when the Assyrians were attacking us. I'll show that shortly. Part of this is an admonition. The Old Testament is still your Bible. Bible literacy is very low. I mean, it gets neglected. But the Old Testament... It's scandalous. But think about it. The Old Testament was, was Jesus' Bible. The Old Testament was the Bible that Paul used. So it will benefit us to know it, know it better. Now, last week when we covered that whole, that whole poem about God's character, we did most of the heavy lifting last week. This week we just have to finish this chapter. It's one uh, poetic piece. But knowing, looking back on that, knowing what God is like, it's going to help us understand how he operates, why he does what he does. And so I'm going to 
uh, read the chapter. I'm going to read what we read last week also. So going back to Nahum. Joel, Amos, Elodiah, Nahum, Jonah, Micah. Nahum and Habakkuk. Okay. Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. He'll pursue his enemies into darkness. That ends the poem. Moving forward. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut off, cut down, and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break his yoke from off you and, I, and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make, you, make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, Upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So here, moving forward, we see uh, two things. We're going to contrast 
uh, Assyria's plot against Yahweh and Yahweh's plan. Now, they happen to be mashed up in somewhat of a poetic, chiastic structure that uh, I will describe. And I think it's worthwhile uh, because this is so common, not only in the Old Testament, but the New Testament, this strange way of structuring. In the West, we always start at the top and go to the bottom or left to right, and we just build as we go. It's just not the way, a lot of times, the ancient Near Eastern mind was thinking. They would think in a more roundabout fashion. And so when they write, it tends to be this sort of a outward to inward thinking. They repeat things in a different way. And so the structure we're going to see is like A, B, A prime. Or A and A prime, they're talking about the same thing. In this case, we have some verses uh, about Assyria, and then he's going to talk about Judah, and then he's going to come back to Assyria. It's just the way they were thinking. It made perfect sense to them. And so I explain it because I think you're going to see this so often, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. It's very common, and it, it can throw you off because why is he talking about this again? I'm confused. But if you see the structure... It makes more sense. In addition, uh, sort of a hermeneutical tidbit, the structure, whatever structure we find in the scriptures, it points us to some sort of emphasis. What, what is the author emphasizing? We get that from the structure. And we see because point B is at the center of this chiasm. It could be more involved. It could have gone A, B, C, B, A or even more. And oftentimes what's in the center, in the middle, is what the author's really thinking about. And so that will come up. But we're going to unravel it. But just so you know, that's how, how it shows in your Bible. That's how you, we just read it. In that structure that's sort of strange to us. But verse 9 starts this new section. And it's the first part of this little poetic piece. It says, what do you plot against the Lord? What do you plot against Yahweh? I appreciate that the NIV takes this and says, whatever they plot against Yahweh. That's the sense of it. Whatever they plot, he will make a complete end. And there will not be a second time. He doesn't try something halfway and fail and have to try it again. And so we see Assyria is plotting against Judah, but also against Yahweh himself. And this will make a lot more sense if we actually look at this section. It is a passage that uh, the narrative part of it is three times in our Bibles. It's in 2 Kings, it's in 2 Chronicles, and it's in Isaiah, because he was there witnessing it. So if we look at First um, Kings, Second Kings 19, we'll come back to Nahum, but this will make more sense with this context. 
2 Kings 19. The Pew Bibles, that's page 327, 326. The context here is uh, Judah is being attacked by the Assyrians. This guy, Sennacherib, Sennacherib, he is making this attack. And Hezekiah is fearful. He's wearing sackcloth. He's very concerned. And he prays to God for deliverance. And we're going to read this, picking up in verse 20 of Second Kings 19. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. Now we have several verses of poetry about him. She despises you. She scorns you the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Here's the answer. Against the Holy One of Israel. There's more going on than meets the eye. The Assyrians, King Sennacherib, is attacking Israel. Now he had already attacked uh, Judah, rather. He had already attacked Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, about 100 years earlier. And they were taken off into exile. And big picture, God, Yahweh, was using the Assyrians to do that. But they got out of hand, and now they're misbehaving outside of what Yahweh wanted them to do. And so the plotting and the mocking, they think is they're just going to go after Judah. Yahweh's taking it personally. Against the Holy One of Israel, you have mocked and reviled. Verse 23. By your messengers, you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells. I drank foreign waters. And I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Oh, Yahweh speaking. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from days of old. What now I bring to pass, that you should turn to fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me, because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, and my bit in your mouth, 
and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Let's skip down to verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of Assyria. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in his house of Nisroch, his god, Adramdown, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. Are you following this? I mean, who needs Netflix for this kind of drama? So behind the scenes, Yahweh had used the Assyrians, but now they've gone too far. Their cruelty is so well known. They just enjoyed abusing other places. And Yahweh was not behind that. And so the tables turn. And he says, you've gone too far. I'm going to take care of you. And he turns them around. And so when Nahum is saying, whatever you plot against me, it'll be done. There won't be a second time. And if, if they were aware of this, they were already on a second time. You've read Jonah. A hundred years prior, they got their second chance. They were bad. If you read the same story in, in uh, Second Chronicles 32, it tells it more from Hezekiah's perspective, very personal, about how Hezekiah was engaging with the Lord and the blasphemy of Sennacherib there. If we read in Isaiah, he says, Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes to the height? Against the Holy One of Israel. And so this is, it's in there three times. It's, it's a significant passage. And perhaps a little piece of application for us. God may choose to use us in some way, maybe as parents, maybe as a husband, a wife, maybe as an elder, whatever your role may be. God may be using you in some way. Take that seriously, because there will be accountability. God was using Assyria, but he held them accountable for how they went about doing the task, the role he gave them to do. So with that context and understanding what Nahum is talking about when it comes to Nineveh and their mockery and their plotting, 
In verse 10, he describes them some more. He's mocking this uh, undefeated enemy. I mean, they were, they were 10 and 0, right? The Assyrians had never lost. And then in one night, 185,000 of their army wiped out. Wow. He calls them entangled thorns. Now, if you're out there hiking and you're getting entangled thorns, they slow you down. They're kind of a hassle. But compared to a, a flamethrower, they're gone. They're like drunkards. If you ever had to fight someone, um, a drunkard's pretty easy. They fall over. They don't know where they're going. They can't see straight. And this is the mighty army of Assyria being described as drunkards. Think of it this way. What if this was said about if God was dealing with the nation of the United States in a similar way, and he said, you're going to be like drunkards. Come on, we got the F-22, we got MRAN missiles, we got, we got all kinds of stuff like drunkards. That's what's being said to Assyria. Sennacherib, who thought his plot against the Lord could succeed, Yahweh says, you are a worthless counselor. Bad ideas. We'll skip to verse 14 because that's how the structure takes us along. And this is a little different explanation. And here we see the explicit denunciation of Nineveh. He describes them as a commandment from the Lord about them. No more shall your name be perpetrated. Now this is not so close to us in our Western thinking because we don't think so uh, family-oriented, community-oriented, tribe-oriented. We're very individualistic. But in that day... If someone were to have the thought to think that they would have no posterity, that no one would come after them, that was the worst of curses. And this is what's being said about them. For us today, it'd be like going bankrupt and being resented forever. Similar thought. He tells them that they will be further shamed He's going to cut off their carved and metal images. The pride of many of these nations was their gods, even though they were false gods. That was their pride. If they had none, who are you? How big is your god? They would, and if they didn't have any, again, a strong curse against them. And finally, he says, I will make your grave. What else could be said? I will make your grave, for you are vile. Last week, when we considered what God was like, we, we kind of asked the question, what is God so mad about? Well, now it's becoming clear. He's mad at the Assyrians, and it's gone too far. They are wretchedly bad, despicable. And they will be definitely defeated. 
So now in our, in our little chiasm, we're going to back up and, and talk about the middle of it. Before we do, we'll look at the history. Normally, when we think about history of this sort, we see the first point where Assyria takes over Israel and the last two points. So we're going to fill in a little bit in the middle. Um, Right there in the middle, I've highlighted Nahum's prophecy. So he's right there in the middle. Uh, Before that, uh, I've included where Jonah was preaching and Nineveh repented. And where we read earlier Sennacherib's blasphemous attack on Judah, which failed and the whole army was wiped out. So it's after that, Nahum can think about that and writes about that right there. And then after Nahum, there's some, we don't know exactly when he wrote this, but that's his whole ministry period. Then there's finally the fall fall of Nineveh to Babylon. What he says happens, will happen, does happen at that point. And then we get back into the, the commonly known dates about the history of the Old Testament when uh, Judah goes into Babylon in ex- exile and when they come back. The, the, one of the greater points of showing this is we've been talking about God's character and how he is slow to anger, long-suffering, quite patient. And so I've shown the distance there sometime after they were commissioned, God used them to punish other nations. And we knew they were misbehaving because Jonah went to preach to them. And they did repent. But then they repented of their repentance. They went back to their evil ways. And we read about Sennacherib and his attacking Judah and really blasphemously reviling God himself. All the way through Nahum's prophecy to where they actually do fall. That's 100 to 200 years. Now, even if you talk about the patience of Job, right? That's nothing. Yahweh is very slow to anger. And that teaches us a couple things. One of them, even Proverbs brings it up. Being slow to anger makes you better than the mighty. It's a really good quality to be slow to anger. But it also means that it requires some, some patience. Lots of patience. So we come to this middle part of the little chiasm area, point B, where the poet, he shifts from talking about Assyria before and after, and now he's talking about Judah. And in verse 1, it says, an oracle concerning Nineveh. It's an oracle. An oracle is this, this proclamation, which very typically has the formula, thus says the Lord. And here we see it. Thus says the Lord. And what does he say? Though they are of full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Speaking of Assyria, 
and that makes good sense now in the, in the context that we've described. They may be the undefeated team, but they will lose. And here, though I have afflicted you, using Assyria, Yahweh saying, I will afflict you no more. Some comfort. Verse 13, And now I will break his yoke off you and will burst your bonds apart. Those bonds will be broken apart. They will be set free. And so this is a a key statement in the book. How can I say that? Well, let's put three things together. It's an oracle, and it has the thus saith the Lord formula. It's also at the center of the chiasm. Very often, when you have a chiastic structure at the very center, that's the main a big idea right there, an important thing. And the third witness, we may not have said it yet, but Nahum's name means comfort, consolation. And so it's an oracle concerning Nineveh, but his audience is Judah. He's telling Judah about what's going to happen in Nineveh. And so these three things tell us this is an important statement. It's comfort to Judah about what he's going to do to deliver them. And that's very huge. And somewhat bold, because you saw the timeline. This is during a period when the Assyrians were still ruling. It's prophecy. It hadn't happened yet. And so here goes this guy called Nahum, and he is saying, you guys who think you're everything, he's mocking the, the winning team. They're undefeated. And he's got the brass to prophesy, you guys are going to go down. And chapters 2 and 3 describe this in detail. And so it, it takes some boldness on his part to produce this prophecy. Unlike today, where in, in, our, in our nation we have people who, are, who cower at, at China uh, for fear of financial money and whatnot. But the Assyrians would afflict Judah no more. And this is so huge. You know, like after VE Day, when World War II was won in Europe, and we had ticker tape parades, and everyone's going through the streets, everybody's so happy. That's basically what's happening here. What he is saying is that big, that they would be delivered from the Assyrians. And so there's a last point here. verse 15. Now it's an interesting note that what we see as verse 15 in our English Bibles was actually chapter 2 verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. So what? Well, that's kind of a big difference to take it and just rearrange it that way. What were they thinking? They were thinking differently. So in the Hebrew Bible they were thinking that this this verse that we're going to read and discuss belonged beginning the next section. 
We'll see if that makes sense. But in the English and Greek Bibles, uh, it's at the very end of this section. Does that make sense? Or maybe does it make sense to both? It's talking about good news. Behold, verse 15 says. It's like, look. It's very important. Capture the attention. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. I think some of you are saying, finally, something sounds familiar. Why why is that? It's because Paul quotes this in Romans. Romans 10, 15. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Where was that written? Well, now we know. Several places, but in Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. That's good news. When this gets to the Gospels, this gets picked up and used quite a lot. Uh, Jesus is preaching good news. What is that? That's the, the kingdom is coming. Messiah is coming to deliver. That's the good news. In the Acts of the Apostles, it's used. The good news is peace through Jesus Christ. Good news is what God promised to the fathers. Good news is that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth. That's good news. See, originally, good news was almost a military expression. It was the announcement that the war is over and we have won. That was good news. It's first used in the scriptures, um, all these related, three of these related to David. When David had victory over Goliath and the Philistines, good news, we've won the battle. Victory. The second time it's used is over the battle between Saul and David. And word comes to David that they've won. Good news, victory. The third time, again, victory, this time against Absalom. The news comes to David, and it's, it's called good news. Now, it's complex between someone's relationships, but we won't get into that now. It was such an expression that, like in certain times, the king would be on the, on the castle, and he'd have a spotter, a watcher, and they'd be watching, of course, keeping lookout all the time, and then... They'd see someone, someone running alone. Okay, someone running alone without a weapon. Okay, he's just a messenger. Okay, he's coming. He's running. Boy, it looks, it looks like the, the running of Ahimahaz, the son of Zadok. I mean, they knew these guys so well, they kind of knew their gait, how they ran. They could tell them apart. Here he comes. And the king said, he is a good man, and he comes with good news. This is an expression that they knew about. It's gospel. It's good news. 
And so here Nahum is saying, after this, keep your feasts, O Judah. He's saying, celebrate. The enemy is defeated. Now, it's a prophecy. It hasn't happened yet. He will be defeated. But he's saying it that way. He is defeated. And this is true comfort. Go ahead and fulfill your vows. Do your feasts. Have your festivals. For never again shall the worthless, that's the Assyrians, never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And that's where Nahum cuts off his chapter here, at least according to the English Bible. And that is great comfort. The good news is a consolation. It's a comfort. When Mr. Miyagi came and was delivering Daniel, that brought him great comfort. When Yahweh delivers Judah from the Assyrians, that brought them great comfort. Even the hope of it coming. And Nahum, or like Jesus, delivering sinners from judgment, that brings us great comfort. And Nahum, the prophet of God's wrath, becomes a prophet of God's comfort. And so you see how the theology that you enjoy about the New Testament is really embedded in the Old Testament. You probably didn't think you'd find it in Nahum. So what do we do with all this? I asked the same question from last week. Do you know God the way he wants you to know him? Because knowing him as he reveals himself will help you. It helps us understand his, his anger, understand his wrath, his judgment, and his patience. Because I'm surely we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, like David said. But we can't expect Yahweh to do all of our expectations on, or all of his plans on our timetable. The people who heard this prophecy, many of them didn't live to enjoy it. It was still true. God was still at work. He was still faithful. So sometimes faith means accepting that Yahweh may see fit to act outside your timeline. In fact, maybe outside your lifetime. That's what faith requires. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith at the end there. It says all of these though commended through their faith. He's already talked about Abel, um, all these people in the hall of faith, the long list. And he says, all of them, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had providing something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so the idea here is that there's just more at stake. There's a bigger plan involved. And so an application from this, may, it may not be an action. You go home and do something. It might be more of a change of mind, which is what repentance is. Um, it might be thinking about Yahweh differently. 
Last week we mentioned thinking him as a person with these personality characteristics. And from that, as we gain appreciation for what he is like, then we're better able to understand his ways and how he operates. And then we can be more useful to him in his work. Because otherwise, we're far less useful. Be like on the, on the team and not knowing the plays. On the team and not knowing the coach. So it helps us to see the word from a better advantage because his, his ways are higher than our ways. His ways are better than our ways. We have to understand him to understand his ways. And the gospel, which means good news, uh, is just that. God has announced that in Christ, he has defeated our enemies. He's defeated sin. Both the, the, the penalty of sin in the past, the presence of sin as we are sanctified, and eventually the very presence of sin. He's conquered death. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, lives and believes in me, shall never die. Is that not comfort? The promise of the gospel. So during these times, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's easy to get discouraged. I would encourage us to, to back up and look at a bigger picture. Way up. And to look, look at the world from something much higher. I mean, someday, uh, our kids, our grandkids, are going to talk about the Wuhan flu the way we talk about the Spanish flu. It was a long time ago. It affected culture. It affected politics. A lot of people died. All those things. And that was, that was a long time ago. And now we happen to be involved in something similar. It's perspective. There's two perspectives. There's a train perspective, and there's the plane perspective. So if you're on a train, you see everything going by, and you're going very rapidly. (laughs) Everything's passing by you. There's a little bit of turbulence along the way. And you're experiencing everything as it happens. And it can be disconcerting. But from an airplane, you look down on the train, it looks like it's sitting still. It's hardly moving. But nothing's changed. People are on the, on the train are still experiencing everything as it goes by. <laughs> and so we can't get off the train. We live life on the train but we can visit the plane and get that perspective that's calming, that's comforting, knowing that there's a bigger plan and that Yahweh, who is good, and he's in control, visit the plane more often. And frankly, our country is in some chaos, to say the least. Um, but frankly, the more 
our country gets this way. I don't like it. I don't want it. I'm a patriot. I dedicated a quarter of my life to that. But the more it goes this direction, frankly, the more our neighbors will be attracted to Jesus. It'll be less comfortable. And they'll be able to think more about what they should think about. And so let's not bemoan the the political and cultural scene. Let's do our job. I mean, yeah, you, you need to be a parent. You need to do your nine to five. But while you're doing all that, we have a job. We're to be a witness, a testimony. We're to preach the good news. It's the great commission to make disciples, baptizing them. Which reminds me, and I'll close with this idea. Uh, just yesterday, we, were, we attended a baptism out on the Kishwaukee River. And it was a wonderful time. It was so encouraging to see someone uh, just 20 years old uh, explicitly and overtly confirm her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. With clarity, it was great. And to see her declare her intentions to follow him for the rest of her life. We need so much more of that. So let's get to know Yahweh the way he wants to be known. Uh, which will also bring us closer to Jesus. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us and making yourself known. We confess that we struggle sometimes to understand you as you are. So help us to do that that we might know you better, understand you in a deeper way, and that we might understand how you operate, understand your ways, and that we might be more involved with what you're doing, uh, that you'd be glorified, that your kingdom would move forward as you have. Give us a glimpse of the big picture. Amen.